Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Glad you're with us this week. We have two overarching topics on the program this time. A bit later in the hour, an extended discussion with Admiral John Richardson, Chief of Naval Operations. He talks with Federal News Network Scott Massioni about the Navy's design for maintaining maritime superiority. The 2.0 version of that strategy document is just out. We begin the hour, though, on the topic of DOD oversight. Every year, by law, each statutory inspector general in the federal government is supposed to draw up an annual list of their agency's top management challenges. In a place as big and complex as the Defense Department, narrowing those challenges down to just a few is a tall order. But the Pentagon's IG has come up with 10 of them for 2019. Brett Mansfield is senior advisor to the principal deputy DOD inspector general. He talked with me about those focus areas for the coming year. So, Mr. Mansfield, the, the DOD is a big place, obviously, so culling all of these management challenges in, into a, a list of 10 seems like a challenge in and of itself, no matter kind of how broad and overarching you are when you when you actually draft the language. So I'd, I'd like you to start us off by talking a bit about that process, selecting the list and, and doing it in a way that gives both you and management some, some clear and meaningful places to focus. Sure. What I'd say is uh, the compilation of the list is a... Really, it's a group effort here within the OIG. We don't rely on one person or one person's expertise. And so we have a series of uh, processes we go through. One is we rely on the expertise of our staff, our audit and evaluative staff and investigative staff that have been working in the department either in oversight or some of them come from the department uh, for their, throughout their, the history of their career. So we use their expertise in terms of what the challenges are, but we also rely a lot on our oversight work, oversight work done by GAO. We review a lot of policy documents, you know, quadrennial defense uh, review, uh, defense policy statements that are out there. We review testimony by senior officials within the department department. We also spend time talking with uh, senior officials within the, within the department as well to get a feel for what they feel the challenges may be. Uh, and then using that, we come back as a group of our senior leaders and we have a dialogue and a conversation about what are the most pressing challenges this year? Are they the same as last year? Are they shifting? Uh, and then based on that, we, we come up with the 10. But like you've said, 10 is a, it's, it's a slightly arbitrary number. I mean, obviously, you could we could find 15 if you wanted to or 100. Uh, so what we we try to do is we try and find those big areas where we think there's uh, a challenge area and we try to find a theme and we try and find an, a number of different components within that challenge uh, so we can capture more in a challenge than just you know just saying contract management we want to what is the focus we would be looking at in contract management we try and call that down a little bit yeah and this year's list at least at a very high level looks pretty similar to last year's which you know there's some logic to that because if you could solve these things in one year they wouldn't be management challenges but there i think there are some nuances for 2019 so what what would you call out as far as any you know changes in emphasis or maybe some of the ways those changes in emphasis are causing the DODIG itself to realign some of your own oversight resources Sure. Uh, so what I say, like the big changes between last year and this year are, I'll point out a couple of challenges specifically. So last year we talked about identifying efficiencies within the department and the department using processes they already have in place to, in to include oversight work done by the DOD OIG. Um, 
to identify areas where they can improve processes and have additional funds and resources available to put to, to better use. This year, we're focused more on the DOD's reform initiatives, which is essentially the result of the department looking internally to determine where they can increase efficiencies. And so this year we've shifted away from identifying to actually acting upon those initiatives the department has put in place, anything from, um, you know, implementing a new defense travel system to changing the way healthcare is done and placing it under one agency, under the defense health agency. Uh, so that's, that's one shift. Another thing we did this year is because the department has shifted its focus away from uh, counter-terrorism, let's say it's still not a challenge, but they're also looking at uh, state actors and near-peer competitors like China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. So we took and we separated those two challenges out into, or into two separate challenges versus having just one, so that we could really talk about the nuances of each. Another, another, I think another big change for us this year is uh, we've always had uh, nuclear enterprise as one of the challenges and modernization mainly being the key there. But this year we included in with that uh, uh, missile defense and uh, space operations because you can't have an effective nuclear system or without those other two uh, systems and processes really being uh, up to speed and we're, we're experiencing as a department there's challenges in both of those both in terms of or all, and I'm sorry in all three of those both in terms of modernization and also interoperability to make sure that they all communicate clearly. Um, so I'd say those are those are three of the big ones that have kind of shifted for us. Uh, with financial management, that's another one where we didn't. It's still a challenge, but we focused more on the response to the uh, financial audit that occurred versus um, just talking about financial management in general. Um, let me pick up on, on, on again one of those nuances. I think last year's list talked about balancing readiness, modernization, and force structure. And this year, it's kind of morphed into just improving readiness with more of a, you know, a, a single focus on readiness, I wouldn't say to the exclusion of those other things, but sure. pivoting from, from a balance to more of, as I said, a focus on readiness. So talk about the reasoning for that. So the real rationale behind that is the department's uh, focus on, on lethality. And so what we thought we would do is one of the efforts behind lethality is it's, it's measuring the readiness of your, um, your service members to actually do the job that they're charged to do. And so it's not that those other ones aren't important because modernization and force structure are all part of readiness. But we thought this year we'd really just focus down on that one just to make sure that we're keying in on one of the department's key strategies for itself, and that being you know, um, increasing lethality of the force. Gotcha. Um, because of time constraints, we're not going to get to all 10 challenges here. But, but I want to focus on at least a couple of them. And one of them is one that you already mentioned, uh, which is the first on this year's list, implementing Secretary Mattis's reform initiatives. Because th those initiatives, at least in part, I think, talk to some of the other things on the list, including readiness, including business operations, improving financial information. Um, in other words, it seems like you and, and OSD leadership are pretty well on the same page as far as at least identifying the challenges. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Um, one of the things I would note is, you know, we use the uh, management challenges to feed um, the management challenges document in those 10 categories as uh, er areas that we try to focus our oversight in. And so we use the management challenges document to set up our, our oversight plan. And so you'll see if you look at our oversight plan that we've outlined the number a number of projects under each challenge that we're planning on doing this year to address those challenges and see how the department's progressing. Of note is for the um, the reform initiatives, 65% of our planned projects touch on one of the one of the reform initiatives 
as well as one of the other management challenges. And so to your point, there's definitely a lot of overlap, um, but I think it's okay to, I think for us it was important to call out the reform initiatives separately from just the management challenges because they are specific programs or processes the department is trying to implement. And we want to make sure that in our oversight, we're ensuring that they are achieving the results that they're expecting to from those efforts. Yeah, in other words, good job, guys. You've identified some specific courses of action here to, to correct some of these weaknesses. Now we're going to, in our oversight role, make sure you actually do them. Yes. On on audit, you know, 15 years, I think, maybe more than that, after the department's first financial improvement and audit readiness plan was issued. Obviously, first audit ever happened over the past year. And I'm just wondering, at a very high level, what did that audit tell us about the extent to which any improvement actually has been made over the course of that 15 years? I'm not sure I can speak to the uh, progress over the last 15 years, but what I can say is what's important out of the audit. And what I think is most important that's coming out of the audit from our perspective is each, each, um, each audit of each component's financial statements and the agency-wide has a list of um, notice of findings and recommendations. And what those are is um, the identified problems by the auditors that the department has to address in order to have uh, strong financial controls and, and a clean financial uh, audit uh, down the road. So the most important thing to come out of the audit this year is the identification of those um, notifications, uh, findings and recommendations, and the department's efforts to track those and act upon those. So it's really for the department this year, I think it's, a, it's about learning what needs to be addressed. Um, and they've, they've made a commitment to tracking those, um, each one of those NFRs, uh, notices, findings and recommendations, and then um, p- putting together plans to address them both individually within components and overall across the department. And so I I think that's the most important thing that came out of the um, audit this year is really understanding where they need to focus their efforts and then keeping focus on it through a process which the department is putting in place to actually ensure they're acting upon those in a way that will address the concerns the auditors have raised. And then hopefully when the auditors look at them next year, they'll see improvement, if not, you know, complete uh, fixing of those of those um, issues. One thing I did want to touch on as well is the bullet point on ethical conduct, because the report itself on management challenges makes very clear that the vast majority of DOD senior officials perform their duties with integrity, with ethical conduct. And I I think that, you know, the general trend of substantiated senior official misconduct investigations has been headed downward in the past several years. So, So given all that, I'm just curious as to why that area still makes the top 10. Well, I think it's important because it, when it comes to uh, trust in, in the government, uh, the Department of Defense is one of the most uh, trusted government agencies within the United States. And so if you, if you have you know, one incident of unethical conduct that is you know, headline news and it's really getting out there, that starts to degrade um, the confidence that the that the American people and the Congress have in the Department of Defense, and so it doesn't take a lot of unethical behavior to impact the reputation of an entire organization, and so that's why I think that one's still um, on the challenge list for us, because it is so important to what the department does to have confidence of uh, the American people as well as other other nations when we're interacting with them. That we're going to do is, a, is the Department of Defense is going to do the right thing uh, consistently, and so that's why we keep that challenge on there, just so we don't lose sight of that and we don't get complacent. All right, and and just before we let you go, I, I want to hit on one more topic: um, acquisition and contract management. 
earlier on in our conversation, you said that was one of the areas where you wanted to cull things down a little bit and, and focus on some particular kind of subtopics. So what, what's the focus going to be in the contracts area? Well, you know, I think we kind of we kind of changed the title of this one to really talk about making sure the department is getting what it pays for on time at a fair price and with the right capabilities. And that's really what we're talking about uh, for the challenge this year is making sure that the department, um, first off, is defining their their requirements correctly. We've found, uh, you know, in a number of reports and projects over the years that, you know, the the um, key to good contract management is having the right requirements the first time. Uh, a lot of times you have cost overruns and you have um, schedule overruns because the requirements weren't exactly right and you're going and the department has to go back and rework requirements, rework agreements with um, the contractor, price increases because they're adding on to what they originally thought the requirement was. And so for us, I think the real focus is on that requirements development, making sure that it's clear what they're trying, what, what the department's trying to get, uh, that it really does meet the needs of uh, the uh, the user, and then really tracking down on on their schedules and their pricing, and then doing consistent oversight uh, through quality assurance surveillance plans of the contractors, so that they know that they're doing what they've what we're paying them to, and they're delivering something that's actually going to be able to be used uh, when it's finally you know, accepted by the department. Brett Mansfield is senior advisor to the principal deputy DOD inspector general, talking with me about the department's top 10 management challenges for 2019. You can read more about the IG's assessment of each of those areas in the full written document. We'll post a link at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. Short break, and when we come back, Admiral John Richardson, the chief of naval operations. That's next on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Servu. Thanks for listening to On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. One of the first things Admiral John Richardson did after he became the Chief of Naval Operations a little over three years ago was to release what he called a Design for Maintaining Maritime Superiority. He and the Navy said it was different from a traditional campaign plan, partly because the strategic environment was so complex that it needed to be adaptive over time. And the strategy document itself has adapted. Version 2.0 is just out. Richardson talked with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni about exactly what has changed and how that's reflected in the new version of the design. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, I would say that if there's one, uh, urgency is a great word if you wanted to characterize the uh, the design in one or two words. And I would say that we're returning to a uh, competitive stance and we're doing so with urgency. First one, uh, version 1.0, was issued in January of 16, and uh, we've been executing that for you know the intervening two years, and uh, now we're ready to launch into 2.0. And could you tell us how this changes a little bit from from version 1.0? It seems to have a little bit more of an emphasis uh, emphasis on near peer competitors. Uh, China and Russia right. are, are mentioned multiple times. So, yeah. where are we seeing this this difference? I'll tell you, uh, the uh, version 1.0 called out great power competition as a challenge for our time in uh, 2016. But what has changed since then is that uh, the president has released the national security strategy. The secretary of defense has issued a national defense strategy. And uh, those two have also identified uh, this 
great power competition that is characterizing the security environment. And so we wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, our strategic thinking was aligned as closely as possible with those two uh, major strategic documents, and, and we believe that it is. Uh, the second thing was that, um, yeah, as I said, we'd made a lot of progress. So just as you see in version 2.0, there's a number of tasks that we had in version 1.0, and, and we've executed and finished a lot of those those tasks. And so it's time to get on with you know new things, right, new goals. And then uh, always, uh, if it's, if you had a chance to read uh, the original design, it was—I mean, it is a design, right? So it's it's built from the ground up to be flexible and responsive to uh, change, and so it was time to just reassess the assumptions that uh, we built in and baked into design uh, version one, and make sure that those still pertained in design version two. So I suppose that. You know, those three things are the real uh, driving factors that led to uh, version two. And this seems to kind of take on a, a sort of new look to the way warfare is. You're talking a lot about ag- agility, a lot about sustainability. What do those words mean to the Navy compared to, to wars past and, and future conflicts uh, as a, a comparison? Well, I'll tell you, as uh, the, the uh, Navy, naval forces, you know, the Navy Marine Corps team in particular, you know, we are by design maneuver forces. And as we uh, e- emerge from a uh, couple of decades that was defined by uh, the war on violent extremism, uh, boy, there was, we, we got into practices where uh, we sent an awful lot of naval power to the Middle East and then brought it back, was, you know, sent it out and brought it back. And, um, you know, we're finding in this great power competition that uh, one of the things we have to do with urgency, as you said, is restore this sense of global maneuver, our ability to really take uh, naval force elements and move them around the globe uh, in a very dynamic way, in a way that is hard to predict if you're on the other side, you know, if you're an adversary or a rival, in a way that is reassuring if you're an ally. Uh, but you know, maneuver is the uh, the watchword of the day. And so as we distribute naval forces around the, the globe, really in support of, you know, protecting America, playing that our way game, in support of promoting our interests around the globe, in support of enhancing our prosperity around the globe as a nation, uh, we're going to be a lot more dynamic, a lot more maneuverable, and we've got to pick up the pace. You know, we, we continue to I think we need to recapture the momentum in terms of you know, conceptual things, in terms of uh, being able to physically move, and also in terms of being able to deliver capability faster. Now, one more overarching question. This has a lot of you know big strategy words, like I said, agility, sustainability, that kind of stuff. What is the average soldier going to see, and and how quickly do you hope that this kind of bleeds down to that that uh, petty officer or so? Yeah. Uh, well, as we think about our sailors, um, this document uh, is by design, I would say, design, written to speak directly uh, down to, I would say, commanding officers, right, and as senior enlisted on ships. So certainly to all the fleet commanders, certainly to all of the group commanders, the squadron commanders, 
the just those sorts of folks, uh, but all the way down to the unit commanders of ships and squadrons, platoons around the Navy. Uh, it, it should speak directly to them in language that they can very clearly understand and also implement at their level. Now, to the petty officer, uh, I think that it's up to the commanding officers and the senior leadership on those units to translate this down to their level, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of the responsibility of the levels of leadership, the hierarchy of leadership, to to make sure that they understand this and translate it so that their teams can, uh, can implement it. And it seems like you push some of the decision-making farther down the totem pole so that those like command leaders, those unit leaders, can make decisions for those, uh, those people so that, that when they're in an area that they can't control or that an admiral cannot uh, be overlooking all the time, that they know what to do in, in that moment. Uh, does that seem like a fair yeah. characterization? Well, this idea of decentralized command and control is a real strength of uh, the military and a particular strength of naval forces. And we expect our commanding officers to take their teams and go over the horizon. Uh, There's not going to be a lot of leadership looking over their shoulder. And we expect them to make them better and come back stronger than when they left. And I would say that there's sort of two dimensions to the way that they have to improve. One is they've got to come back, you know, better operators, better warfighters, right? So from a the ability to fight their ship, fight their unit, fight their squadron. Uh, they've got to improve while they're out there uh, deployed. Uh, but also, from a character standpoint, we expect them to come back, you know, stronger in that regard as well. So, you know, it's, uh, there's a part in the design that talks about you know, core attributes, and uh, those are the things, the combination of character development, strengthening their character, Combined with strengthening their competence, that combination uh, gives any senior leader the confidence that they can delegate that task down to subordinate commanders. And then, you know, all of those COs, all of those commanding officers get to use their initiative. Uh, they're going to respond to opportunities and threats that uh, uh, very, very quickly on a basis and uh, with an effectiveness that would be really impossible to achieve if we if we highly centralized it. So we, we count a lot on those CEOs uh, to do the right thing. Admiral John Richardson is the Chief of Naval Operations. More of his discussion with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni after another quick break. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serdu. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu as we continue our conversation with Admiral John Richardson, the Chief of Naval Operations. He talked with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni about the 2.0 edition of the Navy's Design for Maintaining Maritime Superiority, just out in December. Within this, this strategy, you have a four lines of effort. And one of those efforts puts a really strong emphasis on awarding contracts and, and delivering those contracts in, in the very near future, in the early 2020s. How do you expect to do that? And how do you expect to make sure that these are awarded on time, the schedule stays on time, and that you can do it quickly? Yeah. Uh, so that is in the green line of effort, which is all about uh, high-velocity outcomes. Uh, 
And embedded in the uh, high-velocity outcome is, you know, sort of high-velocity learning, okay? Uh, But learning that actually gets to a deliverable at the end. And so uh, we challenged ourselves uh, to actually put in the uh, design itself some pretty specific outcomes that we want to get to in terms of, uh, you know, delivering capability. And, but really what underly, underpins all of that, uh, and as you said, these are pretty near-term outcomes for some significant and complex programs, is the learning that we've done in terms of how to define the requirements, work with industry, work with the uh, financial management part of it, work with the program managers so that we can get this thing going at a speed that's relevant to the uh, security environment, right? We You don't want to be the second team to field uh, a high-end capability. And so uh, time and, and the sense of urgency that you, t- that you talked about is a critical element of our way going forward. And within this, you have this, this idea of synergy between development and uh, naval doctrine, and, and that has to do with some change in, in doctrine within the, the colleges, the war colleges, and some of the acquisition colleges. How does that sort of work for, for you? So uh, what... Uh, what one can maybe envision is the uh, Navy as a you know complex and adapting learning organization, and uh, so you know there's a lot of aspects to learning and a lot of ways that we can get after uh, becoming uh, smarter and better at the way we do business, and uh, part of that is going to be our system of schools, right? And we have. Uh, training schools, we have education schools, we have graduate schools, uh, we've got the Naval War College, we've got the Naval Postgraduate School. So that's one way of learning we have as we teach. Uh, we also have uh, uh, fleet uh, exercises, right? So we take forces out fleet, uh, and take the fleet out to sea and we try certain things. And we have experimentation that goes on with the, with the uh, immature technology, right? We'll take it out and uh, put it in the hands of sailors as fast as we can and just start uh, you know, rapidly prototyping and iterating on that. Uh, and then uh, we've got you know, analysis and studies, you know, formal uh, types of efforts that do that. Um, so what we've done is we, you know, now that we've got this great power competition as a unifying theme, uh, we can now start to get this learning engine, you know, really going. The gears are starting to mesh as we think about how we're going to confront this uh, this competitive environment. And so we're going to set up uh, essentially two major hubs, one on the East Coast in Norfolk uh, at Second Fleet, the brand-new fleet we stood up this last year. And that's going to be, by and large, uh, centered on concept development, and then on the West Coast, we're going to set up a uh, development group in San Diego uh, at Third Fleet, and that will be by and large centered on uh, capability development. And then, if, you know, if you've been in this business, uh, you know that, hey, if I bring a certain capability, well, that's going to generate a new set of concepts, which is going to generate a demand for a new capability. And so there's a real uh you know, collaborative, constructive dynamic that exists between capability and concept development. And so those two hubs are going to have to really be in that close coordination. It's all to really get this this learning engine started uh, really at, uh, at, at the entire Navy level, 
and then scale it all the way down so that if I'm in a work center on a particular ship, boy, it, it all scales down, and uh, I can be learning at that scale as well so that, hey, the, the preventive maintenance or the maintenance action I do today, let's take a look at how we just did that so that the next time I do that, you know, I can do it smarter. And within the same line of effort, you give the Admiral Burke and also Admiral uh, Moran these priorities to to look into problems with the corporate problems, the training problems, and you're asking them for a pretty quick turnaround by the end of the year to, to identify these issues. Have you heard anything back by this point? It's a kind of a conversation that's been going on, so I don't think we'll uh, be struggling at all to sort of converge on, you know, five uh, problems that... Uh, that, that, that can focus us. And, you know, we, we won't limit it just to five. If there's more that we can get after, certainly we'll uh, consider that. But, yeah, we've been thinking about this thing for quite a while. So whether it's uh, artificial intelligence or additive manufacturing, you know, again, there's this idea of uh, an outcome-focused approach to this, right? Let's, del- let's focus on a very, solving a very specific problem, and then deliver the solution to that problem. And the techniques that we learn as we solve that specific problem, then we can apply those horizontally across many of those tools, horizontally across uh, a number of different problems. And so uh, that's sort of the strategy going forward. And and you mentioned additive manufacturing. It's one of the, the main points within this line of effort. Can you explain why that might be so important to the Navy at this point? Well, right now, if, you know, we... The, the unique thing that uh, Naval Forces deliver is the ability to get underway and we go out into international waters. We don't need uh, any kind of permission to, to enter another person's, another country's sovereign territory. We can, we can operate uh, around the world, you know, pretty much free of those types of, uh, those types of constraints. Uh, our ability to do that is really dependent upon our ability to sustain ourselves, right? So uh, for a while, you know, we, we tend to bring everything that we need. So all of the parts support, you know, the supplies, uh, all of that stuff we bring with us. Uh, now we do that by making the best prediction of those parts that we're going to need, and we put those in, in uh, you know, storage lockers, right? Mm-hmm. Imagine how that whole logistics system is transformed if you have a three-dimensional printer and the code and the material, and you can, instead of storing your part, you can just build your part, right? Right. And uh, that speeds up the process a tremendous amount because, you know, you don't have to wait for that part to come from a manufacturer and then be delivered sometimes across the globe to a particular ship in a particular space and all of the lift and everything that has to come with that, you can just build it right there on the spot. And uh, so it will transform our logistics enterprise as we do uh, more and more of this. So we've got to, we've got to move into this space aggressively. Admiral John Richardson, the Chief of Naval Operations, talking with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni. More on the strategy and an update on reforms to the Navy's personnel system when we come back. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbiu.
Thanks for listening to On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. A few more minutes left of our conversation with Admiral John Richardson, the Chief of Naval Operations. He talked with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni about a range of topics, including the latest edition of the Navy's Design for Maintaining Maritime Superiority. I wanted to change gears a little bit and go toward the uh, personnel realm. You really do a, an overhaul of most of the talent management system, and, and this makes things a little more looser and a little more flexible, it seems like. Um, it, it seems to try and put people in the pegs that they would work best in. How is that helping? I mean, obviously, that, that seems like a, a much better alternative than, than what the other, the other might be, but uh, how is that helping you prepare for near-peer competition? Well, first of all, let me just credit the people who have done so much good thinking and execution to get us here. So our Vice Chief of Naval Operations, uh, Admiral Bill Moran, has done great work. He was a former Chief of Naval Personnel and got this going. And then our current uh, Chief of Naval Personnel, uh, Admiral Bob Burke, has done a terrific job to lay all of this in because it, it takes a significant effort to really make all this happen. And so we've been overhauling the uh, information technology that allows us to get insight into pretty much every sailor's individual's uh, personal priorities. How about if we say it that way? So some of our sailors are just tuned into high-energy operations. They just want to go from one operation to the next, one seagoing command to the next. It doesn't matter where in the globe it is as long as it's sort of, you know, moving out and, and it's exciting. And we got a lot of jobs that, that we can put those people in. Some of our sailors have families and they say, listen, I'm all in. I want to do as much as I can, support the team, execute the mission. Uh, but I'd like to some, maybe a little geographic stability so I can get my children through school. And we've got opportunities to do that. We can, we can give people that. Uh, some of our sailors want to get an education. We've got lots of education opportunities. So, you know, the idea is, hey, let's understand exactly what sort of drives you, what makes you tick, what you're interested in. Uh, we've obviously got a mission to accomplish, but there's a tremendous amount of overlap between those two, right? Mm -hmm. And we can make the best uh, proposition or the proposal to you in, in terms of compensation, you know, a, a combination of uh, salary, education, geographic uh, stability, whatever, and then uh, you know, we can have a real conversation. So it's the idea of making this uh, more like a, uh, a almost a marketplace is what we call it, where we are uh, proposing, we have jobs to fill, uh, we want to understand what your priorities are and make the best match so that we execute the mission and develop each and every one of our sailors uh, individually as well. So to do that, uh, you know, we've got a number of things. You mentioned it making it easier to move around. Uh, that's that's a major uh, dimension of this uh, personnel program. It allows me a lot more flexibility because I can assign you know, the same sailor to a lot of different places, both in different jobs and in different places. And then uh, it allows the sailor a lot more choices as well, so that if they want to, let's say they want to relocate to San Diego, for instance, well, uh, if they're qualified in a number of different areas, they they have a lot more opportunities to, to find a spot in San Diego. So I think that uh, this Sailor 2025 program, which is uh, making it a lot, uh, making us more capable and more flexible at the same time, 
is uh, is going to be a powerful uh, part of our business going forward. And your force is growing. It's been growing for a couple of years now. And there have been a few programs that have opened up sort of the, the aperture for people to stay a little bit longer if they need to so that you can fill some of those ranks. Um, how are you working, recruiting? How are you reaching out to, to people to grow the Navy, uh, especially now that it's changing? Yeah, well, we're bringing people into the Navy at the you know, fastest possible rate that we can. Uh, and so, uh, you know, all of our schools, our boot camp and schools that uh, bring people in and and make them sailors, uh, we're about at the capacity right now in the neighborhood of 40,000 sailors per year we bring in. And uh, that, you know, we need some real talented recruiters that are out there doing that work and, uh you know, knock on wood to date, they have met their goals uh, every month for about the last 12 years. It's really been a remarkable performance. Um, and it's it's particularly remarkable as you consider that uh, by most measures of performance, we've got about the, we've got the most talented Navy that we've ever had. And uh, these young people, they could go anywhere in the world. They're that smart. They're that capable. They can write their check and go anywhere in this global economy. And uh, they choose to come to the Navy and raise their right hand and take an oath to support and defend the Constitution. And, uh, boy, that level of commitment and everything that comes with that, uh, that really deserves a tremendous amount of respect. And within this personnel part of this strategy, you talk about standing up a three-star director for warfighter development. And there's only really a little blurb on, on what it's going to do, which has some pretty big concepts, changing the Navy's education and, and experimentation. What is the role of this this new director, and what might we see from it in, in the future? Yeah. So in an earlier question, I talked about this, uh, you know, turning the Navy uh, into a more agile learning organization, right? Right. And I talked about, hey, there's going to be some part of that that involves schools, some part of that that involves exercises, experiments, analysis. Uh, the, the new director for warfighter development is going to, uh, he's going to run that system. He's going to run the learning engine uh, for the Navy. Great. It's a huge responsibility. Uh, and just a, a couple more questions for you. One thing that we haven't really talked about and touched upon is the actual family network. And you, this is something that you put into the, the framework. Uh, why is the family so important for the Navy and how is the Navy going to continue supporting them in this role? Yeah. yeah so what we did is uh, between uh, version one and version two of the design for maintaining maritime superiority, we issued the Navy family framework as we define our Navy team, uh, it is sailors, our Navy civilians, and their families. And so, uh, you know, if you think about it, the, the phrase in the Navy family framework is, hey, that a stronger family makes a stronger fleet. And uh, I don't think it takes a whole lot of explanation to see that that, of course, is the case, right? Mm -hmm. And so as our sailors deploy, uh, well, they're deploying, you know, from a family. Right. And so uh, the stronger we make those families able to support their that sailor who is forward deployed and, and contribute to the mission. And also, you know, we want to make sure that we're providing support to those families that are back home. Uh, you know, we need to take that very, very seriously. And so 
the Navy Family Framework talks about, you know, making sure that uh, families have access to authoritative information and, and it's easily accessible, uh, that they've got access to training. You know, the, a lot of our uh, families, a lot of our spouses, for instance, you know, they want to take on leadership roles in the community as well. And so we have some training and education uh, to allow them to, to do that more effectively. Uh, the synergy or the relationship between the operational command and the families in that command, you know, the better commands have stronger relationships there. They support their families better, and the families support the command better. And so you know, just strengthening that whole system and strengthening the family's contribution to the mission is the aim there. It's It's been an essential part of the Navy, I think, you know, since the Navy first stood up 243 years ago. And just one last question for you. Uh, 2019 is basically here. I know you just put out this huge strategy, but when it comes to priorities, what are you giving the most importance to right here as, as the, the year turns? Well, I'll tell you what. If you think about running, you know, the entire United States Navy, which is, you know, a tremendously uh, powerful organization and globally distributed and, you know, lots of people, lots of equipment, lots of ships. And we've really boiled, you know, all of that down to just a uh, a small number of tasks, right? So, uh, you know, on the order of about 30 at the most, right? Uh, that's a prioritization in and of itself. And so you know, this is sort of our high-level priorities. There's enough in here. It's specific enough that, uh, as I said, just about every command can see a way to contribute. Uh, maybe not to every task. Some of these tasks are going to be you know, done at uh, a higher level in the Navy. But uh, this idea of, hey, let's every single day you know, go after building you know, leaders and teams that are armed with the very best equipment, who learn and adapt faster than our rivals, you know, this is the way that we're going to stay uh, the premier uh, Navy in the world. Uh, it does express a lot of our priorities, how the Navy is going to go after this new security environment. I think you rightly uh, pointed that the key to this is going to be our people. Nothing happens without the talent and the energy of our people. And uh, the better we can just provide them ways to reach their maximum potential as quickly as possible, you know, that's kind of my role as CNO, to remove all obstacles and accelerate our people into their maximum potential. If we do that, then we're going to have no trouble. We just need to get out of their way and watch these sailors uh, blow, us, blow us out of the water. Admiral John Richardson is the Chief of Naval Operations. He talked with my colleague Scott Massioni about the newest version of the Navy's design for maintaining maritime superiority and some of the personnel reforms the service is implementing to achieve that design. Earlier in the hour, we talked with Brett Mansfield from the DOD Inspector General's Office about the Pentagon's top management challenges for 2019. If you missed that conversation, we'll post this week's full episode, along with all the rest, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash ondod. You can also find the program in our podcast feed. Subscribe on Podcast One or Apple Podcasts. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.